In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Nadine Hazel, former editor of the Hartford Current and four-time Pulitzer Prize judge. Here's a snippet from their conversation. Is there anything better than knowing what's going on before anybody else? (laughs) I think that is undeniably like such a fun part of journalism. I mean, it sounds sort of crass, just, you know, should be like doing good things for the country and keeping people informed, all of which is, yes, very important. But it's also really cool to be the the people who know things before other people and to be able to say, no, that's not what the governor's thinking. I mean, for decades, all I kept thinking was, and people are paying me to do this. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thank you, Zoe. I'm Mike Barlow, your host and moderator. In this episode of Paid by the Word, my guest is Nadine Hazel. Nadine is a consummate journalist with three decades of experience working at daily newspapers. For more than 20 years, she served in a variety of newsroom management roles at the Hartford Current, the nation's oldest continuously published newspaper. She served as city editor, special projects editor, page one editor, assistant managing editor, and editor-in-chief. She also spent four years as a travel writer for The Current. Nadine was a Pulitzer Prize judge four times, and at the end of this episode, she talks about her experiences judging Pulitzer Prize submissions. It's a great story. And I am delighted to have Nadine here as a guest on this podcast. So this is, you've had such a great career. Uh, tell us a little bit about your career path and uh, and tell us uh, how you became the the writer and editor that you are today. It's been um, sort of, you know, the beginning of it. I worked at a local newspaper in New Jersey and when I was in college, writing obits, which is, you know, the best training in the world <laughs> and answering phones for the news desk and like listening to the reporters. I think listening to senior reporters interview people and it's like one of the greatest educations you can possibly have to become a reporter or a writer. And I think all writers are essentially reporters on some level. And then you went to the Journal News in Rockland County. And then where? I got invited to Stanford, Connecticut. <laughs> and that was the first time I con- I had not thought about becoming an editor, um, but I did. And I fell in love with it. I really, really liked it a lot. I love working with writers. I love working with reporters. I love the relief. (laughs) This is going to sound terrible. The relief of realizing you don't have to go out and cover the train crash that just killed six people. You can send somebody. (laughs) Yes, that's good. And I I do have to interject that to say that you were one of the best city editors that at in the Stanford Advocates history. And uh, people were talking about you fondly years after you left uh, you. So your uh, your presence in the newsroom was felt. And that, that is the sign of a really good journalist that, that you never really leave. very so. nice of you to say. Such a talented bunch, you know, which made such a big difference. What was your next move? And then I got called up to the mothership. <laughs> Um, which was the bit, the Harper Current up in, and I went to be, I first, I almost got hired as a copy editor, but they decided I didn't have the right stuff. And then, um, then they had an assistant, uh, city editor's job open. And I had gone to, I'd gone to Hillary's wedding and I had met all these people from the current who I hadn't met soon, I, you know, on occasion met them. And I got into this long conversation with this woman and it was about the series that we did in Stanford that prostitution in the age of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Of course. Because yeah. you were, you, you were one of the editors on that project. And 
I don't remember. I think it won stuff or whatever, but we were, we had started out with the premise that there would be, that prostitution would be dying because of AIDS, that, you know, that people wouldn't be going to prostitutes. And then we found out the exact reverse. The business was booming um, and that prostitutes were getting AIDS and they were passing along AIDS and there was no communication. And it was, it was a very, very moving series to do. And Brian Poulter. Wow, I pulled that name out of somewhere. Wow, <laughs> wow. Thank you. I've been trying to remember his name now for 20 years. So thank you for- Oh, really? Yeah. I think I remember him because he and I went to Ethiopia together. But anyway- um, That's a good reason to remember somebody also. <laughs> Once you take a flight that long on a cargo on a cargo plane. Oh, right. Um, I re- Oh, now even I remember that. Wow. that's continue. One of the Americaners yeah. trips. Yes, right, right, right. But his photos for that series were amazing. Anyway, I got into a long conversation with a woman who was the was the assistant city editor at The Current, and she was leaving to go to the Atlanta Constitution, and nobody knew yet. And she said, the next morning at breakfast, we were talking, and she said, I'm going to go in to my boss on Monday, and I'm telling her I know who should take over my job, and I think it should be you. And I was like, oh, get out of here, blah, 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 blah. And anyway, that's what she did. And I got an interview, and then Pam hired me. I mean, we had a gang war going on in Hartford. We had 55 deaths in one year. We were working all the time. The schools had been taken over by the state. So it was it was pretty intense. It was great. The team, my city desk team, and most of these were like town news reporters. These were people in their late 20s, early 30s. Are If I tell you the names, you're not going to believe me. But these people were all either town news reporters or city hall reporters. And there, there was an entire layer of reporters above them that were considered the senior writers, you know, dozens of them. And these people include Mike McIntyre who's an Eric Lipton, both Pulitzer Prize winning journalists at the New York Times. Um, Mike Swift, who covers Silicon Valley internationally. Um, Ellen Nakashima, who has covered most major presidential campaigns and written a book. She works for the Washington Post. Liz Halloran, who ended up going to US News and World Report, then NPR. And I mean, the list just goes on. And these were our town news reporters. I mean, they were covering Connecticut towns. So, but so we had a lot of time to focus um, with them on writing and story writing and reporting. And then we pulled them all into the city to help with coverage with the takeover of the schools and with the, and with the um, gang wars. It was a couple of very, very intense years and exhausting. And that's when I went and became um, a travel writer, intending never to go back to hard news. And, you know, of course, never say never. Um, I was very interested in this thing called the web (laughs) and the internet. And I kept thinking we should probably be doing way more with this. And all the younger people on the staff were like, this is crazy that we're not doing this, you know? And uh, I got a fellowship to Berkeley, to UC Berkeley and went out there for a bit. And that was very, very eye opening. And I came back and said, we absolutely have to have an online editor and you need, we need a staff that's devoted to this. That's real. And so I did that for a while. What my, about, my, what, what's the time frame on this? The, uh, what year is it? Yeah. basically. Um, yeah. Hmm, 12 years ago. Uh, okay, cool. So about 12 years ago. I mean, we had a web operation, but it was like, you know, tucked away in the corner and everybody ignored it. And all anybody talked about was the newspaper mm-hmm. and there would be these heated debates like, um, oh, we should put that on the front page tomorrow. And we'd be like, and then there would be a certain group of us that would be like, well, we should be re- reporting this now. 
this should go up online. And other people would be like, what are you crazy? Why would anybody read the newspaper? If we put it up online, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. And this fight went on for like two years. And then even after it was decided that we did have to start putting news onto the website, there was still like this, people were like holding back. You'd, you'd find reporters who would be like not telling their editors they had stories until the end of the day. So it was a huge, I mean, it's, you know, the whole internet thing and what it's done to newspapers will, for us, for all journalists everywhere, felt like it took 20 years, which, you know, it took for when they study it years from now, should they ever study journalism? It's going to be like, and then they transition from print to online. And <laughs> and then the next chapter will be, I mean, it will be so, such a small incident. Um, but it was massive at the time. It was huge. Maybe, it was really hard. Yeah, right. And I think, no, I think you're really onto something there. The idea that, that history is going to cover it in like two sentences, but we know that it was... A, a very long and super painful process and one that some newspapers, let me put it this way, a handful of newspapers figured it out and most of the rest of the newspapers didn't. And I think that's a tragedy and it's become, it's part of the reason why our uh, our country is in a, the mess that it's in today. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. So what, what did you like the most about being a daily newspaper journalist and what did you like the least? <laughs> um, wow, the most... Is there anything better than knowing what's going on before anybody else? <laughs> I think that is undeniably like such a fun part of journalism. I mean, it sounds sort of crass to, you know, should be like doing good things for the country and keeping people informed, all of which is, yes, very important. But it's also really cool to be the, the people who know things before other people um, and to be able to say, no, that's not what the governor's thinking. You know, we just had a conversation with him last week or I was just in a meeting about the budget and that's not what he's thinking at all and that's not going to happen. We have to re, you know, we have to rethink that story. So being sort of in the swim of what's going on, I think is like one of the most exciting parts about journalism. It's also, as you know, exhausting. It's it, and it can be deadly. I mean, you don't want to be the people who know more about Sandy Hook than anybody else. You don't want to be the people who know things that have never even been printed about Sandy Hook and never will be. You don't want to be in that situation, but it comes with also knowing what the governor's thinking about the budget and also knowing when, you know, the school district is going to hire a new superintendent or when they're finally going to allow a girl to take a girl to the prom in one of your towns, you know, so... It's just cool to know things ahead of time. That's, I think that's one of the most fun things about journalism. You've raised a valid point. I mean, being a journalist was like riding a roller coaster. The, the ups were wonderful and the downs were terrible, sometimes awful. It's, it's a strange and exhilarating life. And in retrospect, I feel grateful and fortunate to have been part of such a truly unusual and endlessly fascinating profession. I mean, for decades, all I kept thinking was, and people are paying me to do this. <laughs> Who do you enjoy reading? Okay, so people who I really enjoy reading and am daunted by but find inspirational include uh, Trip Gabriel and Taffy Bordeser Ackner um, among the journalists who I read. Um, although Taffy's also written a book I really enjoy, and I think she's got another. Um, the writer Amor Tolls, who wrote Gentleman in Moscow, I think is a genius, and I the only way I got through that book was by promising myself I could read it again. Um, 
because it, it has sentences in it that you just think, well, if I could write two or three of those in my lifetime, I could die a happy woman. <laughs> um, so I have writers who I, I feel I just love reading their stuff. You know how there are, there are writers who are very workmanlike. They get the job done and they're great reporters and you really enjoy reading them. And then there's people who are both, who are great reporters and great writers. And you just, that's the total package. You're just, and they're among the ones who I love. No, you know, I'm just so glad that you said that because I've had a string of interviews um, uh, where people had uh, have told me, editors have told me, well, you know, the world is divided into reporters and writers, and um, you know, and either somebody is a great writer or they're a or, or they're a great reporter, and if they're a great writer, then they're a lousy reporter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm really, really happy to hear you say what I believe also, <laughs> so I'm happy that we're agreeing on this, that, that you can be both. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, Charles Dickens was, was a good journalist and a good writer. So right. feel, just know, to name, you know, one. To name one. <laughs> yeah. Tom Wolfe, uh, great journalist and great writer. Nora Ephron. Great writer. Nora Ephron, great, great reporter, great writer. You know, so there, there are plenty of them. Uh, Edna Buchanan, certainly. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, what's the guy who writes the books in Florida? Carl Hyacinth, his oh, brother, God. Bob, his brother, Bob Hyacinth, great writer, great reporter. He's one of the journalists who died in the um, Annapolis shootings. Yes, which, yes. That was horrible. Yeah, oh, Carl, Sebastian Carl Hyacinth. Younger. Oh, Sebastian yeah, Younger. Yeah, right. Sebastian Carl Hyacinth, younger, Sebastian Younger. Uh, there's some, they're really, they're whole, and of course, you know, and Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Dorothy Parker. Right. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of really good. Uh, so maybe the next time someone says you can either be a writer or a reporter, I'm going to just push back really hard and, and say, right. okay, this podcast is over. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay. All right. So There's a lot of people who think you can't be a writer and an editor. There's a lot of people who think you, you can't do that either. You're either, you either devote yourself completely and totally to being a reporter slash writer or you're an editor but you can't be both and uh, i think that's very true of some people but i don't think it, you yeah. can't do both so what what brings you the greatest joy as a writer uh, uh, writing a great lead writing a great lead makes me very happy it also makes it possible for me to write the rest of the story <laughs> if i can't get the lead right i have a very hard time writing i mean even even when I'm trying to write creatively, um, if I can't get the start right, I, it's like I get stuck. You know, I mean, I can push through, but it's still like nagging in the back of my head. And I think, oh, that's just terrible. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's so true. And um, and that's something that people, you know, uh, People outside of the business seem to have a hard time understanding why we're so fixated on leads. Uh, but what you just said is, I think, is totally true, which is that once you've got the lead done, the rest of it just kind of flows. It does. Which, I mean, you tell that to people who have a hard time writing, which would be most of the world. And you say, well, just get the lead and you'll be fine. And they look at you like you've got three heads. They're like, no. And then sometimes the lead can be both entertaining and your nut paragraph. Yeah, it That's can be. That's a real art. Uh, there, yeah. uh, if you can do both of those, then you're really, uh, you know, that that was usually beyond, <laughs> beyond my capabilities. Usually, my well, paragraph was the third paragraph, uh, right. which freaked out some editors. But you know, they shall remain no, nameless. <laughs> we weren't, we're not going to discuss them. <laughs> we're not going to embarrass them in public here. <laughs> I think if you can do both in a lead these days, you have like the perfect web story because 
what are we, we're dealing with goldfish attention spans of six to eight seconds. So if you can do the great lead and a little quirkiness or a little funniness or a little thing that makes somebody go, what, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) If you can do that, then you've got the perfect web story because I mean, in terms of if you want people to actually read it. Nadine, which aspects of this business make you cringe or wonder why you didn't get into a different line of work? Okay, just a little thing. (laughs) Mixed metaphors drive me (laughs) crazy. Even when they're, and I don't mean like the really obvious ones. I mean, the ones where they say, where they, where they say like the argument was building to a crescendo and then, and then eventually everyone got down to brass tacks and you're like, (laughs) that's a good one. (laughs) That's definitely better than take, take up arms against a sea of troubles. Um, You're like, no, 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 pick one thing or the other. And by the way, you're going to have to stick with this for quite some time. So commit. Um, (laughs) I think, I mean, this is a, this is such a double-edged sword. Part of the reason we love newsrooms or is the openness having now worked in a corporate environment for four years, I've stepped in it more than one time thinking I could actually say what needs to be said in a conversation even very diplomatically, which is like one of the things you learn as an editor or when you're managing a large staff, the current staff was like 160, I think, when I was running it. And you learn to like go easy and, and, and have conversations that are rational and use measured tones and measured language. But what about that celebrated free-for-all of ideas, the, the idea of the endless conversations and debates that would last forever? So that is one of the things that I love about newsrooms, but also one of the things that I think prevented them from doing what they really needed to do to change. It prevented the change from happening at the speed that it should have happened at. And I count myself guilty um, among the many. The arguments, the, the very strong arguments about should there be an ad on A1? I mean, seriously, I'm sure you can remember these. Mm-hmm. The arguments over should photographers also have to shoot video and stills? Can they even ever learn to shoot video and stills simultaneously or in the same assignment? Um, Can journalists learn to tweet? These are arguments that took years, and I'm not even slightly exaggerating, took years and years and years. And while people were arguing over this and while all of the editors were allowing the arguments to go on and... And listening thoughtfully and making dis- while that was happening, the business was dying. The we were stagnating, and we weren't moving as fast as we should have. Personally, I don't know how we could have accelerated it. I mean, there are places where they did. So obviously, people found solutions: the Washington Post, the New York Times. So that's the kind of thing that makes me grimace about a newsroom these days. Is it's so difficult to move them. They're like aircraft carriers. Getting them to turn is, is such a slow process. And a great deal of it has to do with the fact that they are busy day in and day out doing daily news. So asking them to change at the same time presents a double challenge. Work harder than you've ever worked in your life. Oh, and by the way, could you change? It's like asking someone to do brain surgery on themselves. It's could you dramatically alter what's going on in there, but stay conscious and do everything else that you're doing too. So wow, it's, it's right. the culture we love and it's the culture that killed us. 
But midway through my tenure at The Advocate, someone asked me, you know, like, so what do you think of your career? And I said, you know, I feel like I've been promoted to major in the Austro-Hungarian cavalry. (laughs) Yes. Wow. That was my conversation with Nadine Hazel, former editor-in-chief of the Hartford Current. As mentioned in my intro, Nadine is a consummate professional. And it's such a pleasure speaking with her about our crazy business. But wait, wait, there's more. A couple of days after we spoke, Nadine sent me a short audio file in which she talks briefly about her experiences as a Pulitzer Prize judge. Let's give it a listen. I remember the first time I judged the Pulitzers, I think it was back in 2004 or five. I was on the feature writing jury. You know, you really only got about four days to choose among like hundreds of submissions with a handful of other journalists, usually editors you haven't met. Anyway, it's a pretty daunting task. It's also pretty fascinating. In those days, the submissions weren't yet digital, so they all came in these huge bound packets, and we had something like, well, I don't know, 200 to go through? It was pretty daunting anyway. These piles of astounding journalism next to you on the massive table and everybody just sitting there reading, reading, reading all day. The rule was once a submission got three no's, it was removed, even if the other two judges hadn't read it. You had to. It was the only way to get through the pile. Anyway, sometime on the second morning, I picked up a really hefty three-part series on an Illinois tornado. It was by a writer named Julia Keller. I remember looking at my fellow featured judges about maybe I was in the second part of the series. And I looked up at them and I said, this is it. This is definitely it. Wait until you read this. Journalists who, being who they are, I'm sure I got some half smiles, maybe a few eye rolls, and everybody went back to whatever it was that they were reading. But in the end, Julia's series made it all the way around the table. It took a couple of more days, but once everyone had read it, everyone agreed. It turns out it was really, it was the only Pulitzer jury I was on, and I was on four of them over the years, that there was no disagreement, none at all. If you read it, you'll know what I mean. I had a similar feeling when I read Catherine Schultz's New Yorker piece. I don't know if you read it. It was called The Really Big One. I thought, oh my God, this should win the Pulitzer. This is just astounding writing and so informative. It's a shame it's a magazine story because they can't submit. Anyway, it turned out that was the first year they allowed magazine writing to be considered. I have no idea who was on that jury or what their deliberations were like, but it's hard to imagine them not agreeing on such an amazing piece of writing and journalism. So that's what I mean. Those are the type of people that you think, okay, this is how it really should be done. And I find them all inspiring. Well, that's our bonus track for this episode. Nadine's career in journalism would make a great book. And if I'm lucky, she'll mention me in the acknowledgements. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.